Right. When it comes to heads of terms, is heads of terms on its own enough? No, no. Heads of terms lead to a facility letter or to a contract. They're there just to, it's like an aid memoir. It's a checklist, really. It's just sort of, have we covered everything? Welcome to the How to Raise Money podcast for anyone who wants to raise other people's money for a business or property venture. Right now, there has never been more money on the planet and there has never been more opportunity. This podcast will help you put the two together. So if you need money for your business or property proposals from banks, lenders, angels, whales or dragons, this is the podcast for you. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the How to Raise Money podcast. I am Ray McLennan. And it's with me, Nigel T. Best. Good morning, Raymondo. How are we? Good morning, Nigel. Yep, yep. Sun is shining, splitting the rocks, and birds are singing. Sounds <laughs> <laughs> like I'm oh, breaking a song here. Yeah, I thought I, was at, I thought I was at the cricket listening to Test Match Special there. Is there a bus driving by? And uh, are the pigeons in the outfield? Yeah. And, and for those of you that have no idea about cricket or Test Match Special, <laughs> I apologise, but Ray did a damn good impression there of blowers. My He's dear old thing. Oh, my dear old chap. There we go. Anyway, Ray, enough of that. Uh, no one was really interested in how you are, uh, probably, but probably not. I thought I'd better go through the uh, the motions on that one. But we've got an interesting one today, and I am going to, on behalf of the how to raise money podcast listeners. I'm going to be picking your brains about okay. legal, the legal side of things, because lots of terms are banded around. Lots of uh, people have lots of ideas about what you should use, what you shouldn't use. This legal instrument, this legal piece of paper. Uh, should you use solicitors? Should you use big firms of solicitors? Small firms of solicitors? What specialties should they have? all those things. And it can get a bit confusing. So mm -hmm. we thought we'd come straight to you and, and find out just, we're not going to go into details. We're not going to go into too many specifics. We're trying to give you a rounded picture and some, some sort of guides as to where you want to, you know, go and some of the things that you ought to do, some of the things you need to do uh, in order to protect both you and the other party and the business or the property and everything. So, you know, Ray, uh, we're going to start off with a, a sort of pretend scenario, which which may well be uh, one that people are familiar with, but you are buying a property and the property is uh, a commercial property. Uh, let's say it could be residential. It doesn't really matter, but we are going to be buying it Initially, having secured it using an option. So an option, you can explain the option and the uh, gives, giving you the right to buy, not necessarily uh, forcing you to buy something, but we'll go through that. So you've got an option. You've secured the, the property. You're going to be borrowing money. And uh, this is, you know, a reasonably um, big deal. And there's a few moving parts in it. And you've heard, you're at the point where you're thinking, I think this deal works, but I've heard all these terms. We've got, we've got these things called heads of terms. I've heard people talking about contracts. I've heard people talking about options. I've heard people talking about leases. I've heard people talking about me needing solicitors, them needing solicitors, uh, and all manner of things. And I just want to make sure I get everything in order, all my ducks in a row when it comes to this, because I want to try and understand the potential pitfalls if these things aren't in place. So I don't know if that's painted a, a scenario that you can work with, Ray, but you know, I'm, I'm nervous. I'm a nervous Nelly, and uh, I, I just want to make sure that I've got the, the legal uh, situation tied up with their legal pink ribbon uh, and all sorted so that uh, I'm protected, they're protected, any lender is protected, and that, you know, we're all good to go. So over to you, Ray, what should my, the first thought be? Uh, okay, well, there are probably about eight separate documents that might be required in that particular scenario. So that, that's that's unusual. That's quite a lot. But you've painted a, a, a picture that, that covers just about everything there. 
I, I'm, um, I'm already I'm already worried, Ray, that the meter is running with me, and you're going to be invoicing me later. <laughs> well, uh, a lot of these things um, contracts are can be what's called boilerplate. A boilerplate contract essentially is a template, and you just fill in the template. There are um, lots of online places you can go, like Rocket Lawyer, things like that. We can get these contracts, but. Uh, if there's a lot of money involved, my uh, recommendation is you don't do that. You get lawyers involved. So I'll I'll outline them here. We'll put them in the notes, and then I'll I'll kind of go through what each of them is. But you're you're right about heads of terms. Yeah, you want to get heads of terms. So if you're borrowing the money, you're going to have a, a loan contract. You might have a joint venture agreement. You might have a shareholders agreement. You will have security documents. You're going to have the option agreement. Uh, for the uh, the commercial purchase, then you're going to have, um, if you're doing work to it, you're going to have uh, build contracts, and then you're going to have things like collateral warranties, uh, that sort of thing. So that's all the all the things that you're probably going to need. And I know that people say, oh, you know, lawyers cost so much and all the rest of it. Well, one way to reduce a lawyer's uh, bill for all of that is to get him involved at the heads of term stage. Get them involved, very early doors. So heads of terms. So let's say the scenario is that you have gone out and you have got an option on a commercial purchase. Okay, Someone's given you an option. Now, what they'll normally do is they'll give you an option for 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, something like that. If it's a buyer's market, if it's a seller's market, they're less likely to do it. But you do want to get some kind of option underway. So that's that's something you want to have in writing. Definitely want to get a document. That, that allows you to have the the right but not the obligation to buy. Okay, Ray, so just when it comes to an option, um, we ought to probably just explain to people if, if they're uncertain, this is where you are not at this point committing to purchase, What? but what you are, it, it's this this balance, isn't it, whereby you want to take further action. You want to spend some money finding out things. But what you don't want to do is spend all this money but have no control over the deal and and somebody just turns around and does a deal with someone else and you've wasted money because people get cautious at that point, don't they, about, mm, yeah, you know, I don't want to spend £5,000 doing all this work if you're not even going to give me the chance of buying this building. So what does the option do? Well, the option basically puts you in pole position. So it means that the vendor, the person that's selling the building, doesn't sell it from underneath you. So you have an agreement. So if I, Nigel, I'm going to buy a commercial building from you, I say, right, Nigel, I like the look of that building. The price is about right, um, but I want an option for 60 days to find out that it's okay, to get the finance organized. And if everything's okay and subject to certain conditions, and those conditions sometimes can be known as a lifeboat clause, so, for example, you might say, well, it's subject to a suitable survey. That's just the word suitable. What does that mean? What does suitable mean? Well, I suppose it means whatever you want it to mean. I could turn around and say to you, well, Nigel, sorry, but the survey wasn't suitable, uh, in which case I'm out, but I'm still in pole position until that particular point because obviously you want to sell and I want to buy. That's why if it's a buyer's market, you're more likely to get um, good, you know, an option agreement that's quite long. But if it's the seller's market, you're probably not going to. <clears throat> now, equally, the, the vendor, person that's selling the building, could turn around and say, well, okay, I want some clauses in there that I've agreed to price with you. But if somebody comes along and makes a, an offer that is substantially improved on that one, then I want the right to consider that offer. Now, again, what the buyer could do, is you could turn around and say, well, that's okay, but I'll have incurred certain costs then. So if you do sell it, I want you to pay me my costs if you get more money. So if you're buying a building, let's say it's a million quid, but some, but the clause might say, well, if uh, if I receive an offer of 1.1 million or more, I will pay you 10 grand, 20 grand or something like that. So that's, these can all be put into the heads of terms. That's that's why they can be quite important. Uh, but but essentially, um, is essentially the option gives you a bit of breathing space to know that you're the only one who can complete on that deal yeah. um, in those 60, 90 days, whatever you might have agreed. It Absolutely. just gives you a bit of time to try and 
find out more info, get the answers you want to know before you press the button on going ahead. Because when you get to this point, you you want to know the answers, don't you? But you don't want to spend all this time and effort doing it if the person can turn around and sell it to someone else uh, and not care two hoots about you. So it's a little bit of protection for you, isn't it? Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, you can do the same in residential. You can do a sale with delayed completion, which is something yeah. similar. So, and you've got many, many years to to complete that. Um, you can rent with an option to buy. You can lease with an option to buy. You can do all of these things, but you got to get it in writing. Now, I had um, one of these over a commercial property many years ago, and uh, when it, when I decided to call on the option the vendor, the person selling the building, didn't want to sell it to me. And I said, but we have an agreement. We've got an option agreement. Now, this was five years after, and we'd agreed at a certain price. Obviously, the property had gone up in that time, but what the, the seller hadn't done is he hadn't built in a clause that allowed for the price of the property to increase. Now, that was because he skimped on a lawyer. He took a, he took a boilerplate contract, uh, filled it all out himself, I got my lawyer to check it over. Uh, I knew that that wasn't in there, so there was no pressure on me. But when the time came to buy it, he dug his heels and he said, no, that's not fair. And it was, well, it's not about what's fair. You had, your, you had your chance five years ago to check your contract, get legal advice. You chose not to get legal advice, and now you're paying the price for it. Um, okay, and he right, his, right. He dug that... his heels in that much that we ended up going to court. Okay, and how did the court, you know, who did they find in favour of? Me virtually immediately. On the basis that he had had some legal advice? On the basis that he'd he'd waived his right for legal advice. He was oh, given right. three chances to get legal advice, one by me and two by the lawyer. The lawyer said, look, this contract, blah, blah, blah. Um, but he chose not to do it. Okay, so this is an important thing because this is one that crops up where if anyone's doing something like this, um, often... You've got to be careful, Ray, haven't you? If you are seen as an expert and the other party is seen as a lay person, they'll tend to f say that uh, the contract, um, if, if it comes down to it, uh, under contract law, there's elements in there that if, if they say, well, you're not on an equal footing, yeah. then the the professional person has an advantage. And the, the question the, the court's always thinking is, uh, you know, have they pulled the wool over the eyes of the other party? And therefore, sometimes they'll they'll unwind a contract um, and, and cancel that contract and, and say it, that it, there never was a contract. Yeah. So when we're talking about this and getting legal advice, if you're... Um, you know, the other party is, as in your example, sort of kicking up a fuss and saying, oh, I don't need it, I don't need it. Make damn sure you've got that in writing numerous times because well, it will yeah, come it. back. Three it will times. come back as evidence, won't it? Yeah, that's three times. Um, once from me and in writing in an email uh, because I follow up phone calls with an email in circumstances like that just to confirm our conversation right now, blah, yeah. blah, 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 blah. And then when the lawyer saw it, the lawyer also said, well, he needs to get his own legal advice and wrote to him and said, um, you know, you need to get your own legal advice. There was no reply. So then he specifically asked him to respond and say, are you, are you not taking legal advice? Please let me know before we proceed. So he wrote back and said, no, I'm happy with the contract. I don't need to take any legal advice. Yeah, that was, that, that was the smoking gun, as it were. Okay, but there's been, uh, I mean, I mean, one of the other things, just just to sort of give the history of options, options have been around a long, long, long time. They're not a new thing. So some people look at it and go, oh, this is, uh, and, and especially, um, you know, some parties, some solicitors, they, they view these things as kind of newfangled property strategies as a way of swindling people. And, and yet these as legal instruments, they've been around for years and years and Absolutely. years. Absolutely. Um, there's nothing fancy in them. It's quite straightforward. But here's the thing, folks. You will, when it comes down to money and time, if in time you've agreed, so you write the option, it's got seven years, you're going to buy it in any time within the next seven years for 100000 If that property in six and a half years' time, when you say, I'd like to exercise the option and buy it for 100000 if 
on the open market, you could get 200, 300,000 for it. You are going to have someone complaining. Yes, of course. Now, this is where it's important to make sure you've got the legal documentation in place to demonstrate, as you did, Ray, that you advise them, please get it, please get it, please get it. Okay, will you confirm you're happy with it that way? Or you make sure that they use a solicitor. And this is, there is a number of people out there now who did options a few years ago who were complaining. Yeah. And for some of them, they did use solicitors. And the problem there is, you know, they've had the advice. Um, and this was the reason you have the advice is to put you in a position of equal footing with the other party in the eyes of the contract law. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and therefore the contract is valid and therefore the person has a right to exercise the option and therefore they have a right to purchase the property for the hundred thousand and any uplift then goes to the, to the person buying it. And it can cause issues, but when there's large sums of money, Ray, um, yeah, people are going to end up in court. So this is why it's important. Yeah. No, it's worth it. It's worth spending a few hundred pounds on heads of terms, uh, covering all these things. So, um, you know, brief brief your lawyer, tell him what it is you want to achieve, and then he will come up with all the what ifs. He will be the one that, that brings everything up. And I mean, uh, to go to heads of terms, uh, there are all, all sorts. Um, so you want to... I mean, heads of terms will be something that will be given to you automatically by a bank. If you're going to a bank or a, a lender, um, something like that, they're not going to lend you any money without giving you heads of terms, without outlining exactly what it is. So they will want to identify, I'll just go through it. They'll want to identify who the borrower is. They'll want to identify how much you're getting, what it's for, the purpose, um, the interest rate, the maturity, as in when it's going to be paid back, any repayments that are in there, any facility fees. They'll want to know about security. Uh, if there's a guarantee, they'll need to list the guarantors. Then they will uh, want events of default. So if you're getting development finance, for example, and you're going to sell the building, an event of default might be failure to sell or refinance the property within 12, 24 months of initial drawdown, something like that. You've then got uh, financial covenants. You would want uh, a RICS valuation. So they might say a RICS valuation has to be done at this point and at that point. And then there'll be other conditions precedent, such as um, development appraisal, um, due diligence, anti-money laundering checks, all that sort of thing. Perhaps uh, a quantity surveyor will be needed to do a monthly report, something like that. So that will all lead on to, uh, well, they'll then list who the lawyers are, who's your lawyers, who's their lawyers, any additional information that's required, such as, um, you know, a bank might look for uh, three months business and personal statements. It might look for financial accounts. It might look for CVs. Um, it might look for uh, comparisons, local opinions from estate agents, that sort of thing. Uh, and that will all lead on to the facility letter. Now, a heads of terms will also have an expiry date. So, so the heads of terms will usually say, um, here are our conditions and uh, you know, sign and return it. And if you don't sign and return it by the 21st of the month, uh, you know, it, it's withdrawn. The offer is withdrawn, something like that. So that would be a, a sort of heads of term there. Now, there might be different heads of terms needed if you've got a JV partner, for example, or if you have a private lender, you're going to have different different heads in there. Um, but they're all going to tie in together. And that's why I think you need to get the lawyer involved at a very early stage, because the lawyer can pull all of these things together. Each document can refer to each one. And then once you've got it done and signed, you just want to put it in a drawer and forget about it. Um, you, you know, unless there's uh, some event or something happens, and that's when it gets scrutinized. But the, the main points ought to be in there. Right. When it comes to heads of terms, is heads of terms on its own enough? No, no. Heads of terms leads to a facility letter or to a contract. They're there just to, it's like an aid memoir. It's a checklist, really. It's just sort of, have we covered everything? And you need to take a few runs at it, you know, uh, write down all the things you want to happen. The other person writes down all the things they want to happen or you agree. And then you might banter it back and forward for a while. Uh, and then that would form the basis of the contract. 
Okay, so so it, it it is not enforceable on its own. The heads of terms. Well, it it, it been, gives a it gives a guide and it gives a yeah there have been flavor, where, doesn't it? Where, where they can be. Um, I mean, it, it's like everything. It depends. You know, I'm sure if I spend literally five minutes looking up my case law, I'll be able to give you the names and I'll be able to give you everything else. But generally, no. Generally, it's accepted that it's a discussion document. It's something that you're aiming towards. So if I put in there, for example, that um, I'm going to get 50% of the shares for the money I'm lending, and then you turn around later on and say, well, I don't want to do more than 25% of the shares, then you know, I can't sue you over that because we're, we're negotiating. You know what I mean? We're negotiating. I can't turn around and say, well, you said you were going to give me 50. Um, you haven't signed anything yet. Or you might sign it and agree it, but it's not been put into a formal contract. Yeah, the so, reason the reason I ask, Ray, is uh, I've had a couple of, of people recently come to me um, and, and say, okay, they were in a JV agreement, they had this, the heads of terms and previous discussions were, if this happens, we'll do this. And if, uh, you know, if one party's had enough, the other had the, has the right to buy it from them at a reasonable rate, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but that was never formalized in any contract. And, and now uh, when they, uh, one party sort of wants out and the other one says, okay, well, the fair market rent or price is this. Uh, they're saying, no, 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 I want that. And they're saying, well, can I take them to court? Cause I've got heads of terms. And I said, well, the, the, the chances are that your heads of terms are maybe not quite strong enough to definitively say that was the the agreed course of action. It was yeah. a guide. And, yeah. and I've said, you know, you, you need to get an opinion on that because you could waste an awful lot of legal costs on trying to do something and still end up being frustrated. So this is, this is one of the things I wanted to tease out in this episode is to, uh, heads of terms are very, very useful. And they give the overall picture as to what you're all trying to achieve. But it is unlikely that um, it, it's strong enough to enforce in every situation and circumstance. And that's why, Ray, we move on to the other documents, as you say, facility letter and then contract. Mm -hmm. This is this is the, the document that um, can be flourished in court uh, should, it, should the need arise. So if you if you want to carry on and, and explain the next sort of steps here, that'd be great. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, the facility letter or the contract, that's something where it's going to be there's going to be clauses clauses in there that tell you that this is binding and it's under the laws of England and Wales or it's under the laws of Scotland or whatever it happens to be. Um and you and and it quite clearly lays out what you're, you know, what you are signing. Because there will be attached to that in that contract, there will be other obligations. You might have to give a personal guarantee. You might have to um, grant security. You know, you're going to have to do something because money is going to be changing hands. So what the lender ought to do is the heads of terms of the lender says, right, we're lending a million pounds on, on all, once all these conditions are satisfied, these conditions have got to be satisfied before the money will be transferred. So that usually means that a contract is entered into, the contract is bantered battered back and forth between the lawyers until everyone's happy with it. And then once the contract is signed, the money has to be paid over within a certain time frame, usually seven days, something like that. But it's usually done within a couple of days. Um, now you have a basis that you can hang your hat on. You know, you don't want something that's 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 wishy-washy because things that are wishy-washy and, you know, you talk about not wanting to pay legal fees, but if it's wishy-washy and you try and untangle yourself from it, your legal fees are going to be astronomical. Which is why I always recommend that people get legal expenses insurance. Always take out legal expense insurance. If you're if you're a, running any kind of business, if you're doing any kind of property, you must have legal expense insurance because there's always someone, always, always, always someone that will come after you. I think every business person is going to be sued once, twice, or three times over the course of their business life. And uh, once you've got if you've got legal expense insurance in place. At least it takes the sting out of it. It's the same with having um, what is it? Inspection insurance. You're an accountant. You know you you can offer people insurance against getting a tax inspection or something like that. And it's about I don't know twenty quid a month or something. But boy, is it worth it because it's the hassle factor. If you've got an inspection and you you want HMRC crawling through everything, your accountant is going to have to defend you. He's going to want to get paid. 
and he needs to know. And if so, if there's a contract in place covering that, then perfect, that's fine. But if there isn't, the bill falls to you. No, so, what wise wise things. Uh, um, so take note of that, folks. Okay, so we've got the heads of terms. We've got facility letter. We've got a contract. Um, what else uh, might be useful to get uh, opinions and uh, get it formalised, documented, written down? Uh, what else might we need? Uh, well, it might be a JV agreement. You might be doing a joint venture with someone. So the, the lender might also be a joint venture partner. Well, you could loan contract and the joint venture agreement could be sort of merged into one and have addendums and things like that. But you might require a second. If you're going to do more than one joint venture together, you might want to have a second document, joint venture um, agreement. And one of the key elements in that, Ray, is... Um, we all, I mean, there's a, an age-old phrase, start with the end in mind. Yep. So if anyone's starting a business, you should always think the end is to sell the business. Um, and, or, you know, when it comes to a property, the JV partnership is going to at some point end. And I guess you need to formalize how how that end, you know, what does it look like? Yep. What, tri- what triggers it? Um, what rights does each have over the other person's share? And uh, how can it how can you go through that and make it work? So what are you thinking there? What are your thoughts on that? Uh, well, definitely you want to have events of default and you want to have events of termination. So what is going to terminate? It could be time. It could be just say, okay, in five years time, that's it. This contract will be null and void in five years unless mutually extended, something like that. Um, or you might say, well, the JV agreement is just over this one project. Once the project is finished and the money is split uh, in the following manner, and it's usually a percentage, uh, an anticipated amount. It always is because you can never be deadly accurate in these things. Um, once that's done, um, you might also be setting up an SPV, a special purpose vehicle, which is a company that you're going to be involved in. Or you may already have a company, but the JV partner is stepping in, um, you know, because they're lending money, but they're going to step in. And, and then there's step-in rights and all those kind of things that they might have. So that, that you definitely need a lawyer to cover it all off that's done it before. It's not rocket science for lawyers. Um, like I say, they've got boilerplate contracts and they will go through that. They will use that as a checklist and ask you what it is that you want. But get the lawyer involved at the heads of term stage and then it's much, much easier to create the loan contract or the JV agreement. And then you might need a shareholders agreement as well. You know, there's all, all these agreements in there. Now, this sounds like, oh, God, it's adding up to a fortune. But, I mean, if you're dealing in a, a you know, a million pound, two million pound, three million pound, ten million pound business or whatever, then a certain percentage of that is allocated to legal costs anyway. And, you know, it, it always seems like like money thrown thrown away, but it's actually money well spent. It's an insurance policy. It's to, it's to make sure that both sides um, fulfill their obligations. And if somebody doesn't for whatever reason, then you you ought to there ought to be a remedy, and that remedy doesn't always necessarily mean you end up in court. It just could mean that you know I saw one where the remedy was the JV split was sixty forty, and the remedy was just to change it to seventy thirty, something like that. Uh, uh, there's usually financial implications in these, <clears throat> so it's yeah, always I mean, always always best to get a lawyer involved. Yes, and one of the Things that seems to crop up time and time again that uh, I've seen and, uh, you know, been involved in myself is where you've gone 50-50 on a property and one of you wants to keep it, one of you wants to sell. And it's how do you how do you value that person's half share? Yeah. And it's it's always the argument over, oh, well, I'll just ask an estate agent. And, and you go, well, hang on, hang on. You might say to the estate agent, uh, value this uh, incredibly highly, yeah. you know, not realistic. And it's how do you get those valuations? Because you, you're trying to find a sale value with never going to market. And, usually, and that's, You've usually got an arbitration clause in there yeah, anyway. Exactly. Um, this, is, this is the thing that you, we need to make sure that we have in our deals, isn't it? Yeah, that we have, yeah. we have these processes to say, okay, if you want to sell, but you don't, and you want to buy out, do you have the right to be the first first refusal to, to buy the other half? If so, how do we value it? Um, how long do we have to do that? How long do we have to, uh, to do this? And if, if, um, you know, if, if you can't do the price, can you force the other person to sell as well 
In other words, uh, go to market and sell the whole property and split the proceeds 50-50. And, and this is where, Ray, um, you, can, you can fall out. You can fall out with people because, um, you know, you want your money or they want their money. You don't want to get rid of the property. You see it as a long-term hold. And, you know, it's all these scenarios that uh, people don't often consider and put in yeah, well, writing. That, those are all the sort of things you have to consider at the heads of terms. And that's, again, where the lawyer will help you. You know, they're going to say, well, look at the exit. What is the exit? Do you want to sell? And if you both say, yes, we want to sell, the lawyer will say, well, what happens if you change your mind? Uh, so there will be there will be a remedy for that because you both might change your mind. You both might say, actually, do you know what? We've built this. Let's hang on to it. In which case, you know, you, you have to codify that. Um, okay, right. And follow-up question on that then. Uh, when the solicitor is um, so useful at doing those what-if scenarios, how do you go about selecting your solicitor? Uh, good question. Very good question. Uh, by referral, ideally, you want to – you can get referrals. I mean, if you're in Facebook groups, you can ask people. But people will say, oh, I need a solicitor to do this, but they never say where they are, you know? Uh, if you say, uh, I need a solicitor to do this, and by the way, I'm in Liverpool, that's so much more helpful. So if you are listening to this and you're looking for help, you know, ask the proper questions. Can anyone recommend a good commercial lawyer in Birmingham or for a project in Birmingham? Because the lawyer might not be there. I mean, there's some good lawyers uh, that we've dealt with in Manchester that cover the whole of the country. Uh, you know, so they don't necessarily have to be deadly local it used to be the case many, many years ago, but now you don't have to be, you know, you can use a Manchester lawyer to do a deal in London, for example. Um, but yeah, you want them uh, recommended. Recommended, uh, and I'm, I'm not talking TripAdvisor or, or TrustPilot or something like that. I'm talking about, uh, not TripAdvisor, TrustPilot. I'm talking about other property people who've used lawyers. Now, usually they will guard them uh, and probably go, oh, no, I, can't. I don't have anyone. You know, my lawyer's really busy, is really good, and I want to hang on to my lawyer. And, and that is the case. And I've known some developers who've done that many deals. They now employ the lawyer full-time. Uh, I know three, in fact, who ha had, you know, had uh, a good good set of lawyers uh, or a lawyer, good a good lawyer, and now they, they just employ him full-time because they were paying them that much in fees anyway. And sometimes they've they've gone on to save a fortune by employing a lawyer. You, sometimes you're better to employ a lawyer at 80 grand. If you're doing a lot of deals, you can get a lawyer, you know, 80, 100,000. Um, you're probably going to save the same again in fees that you'd be paying. There we go. And one thing that I know, I was just looking back at the episodes, episode number 80, when we chatted with Stuart Horsburgh. Um, yeah. And, you know, in, in terms of a broker, often if you're going through a broker, the broker will have used uh, or, or, you know, been involved with so many firms of solicitors and they will, they will have an opinion as to um, how fast they are, how good at value they are, how thorough they are, how suited they are for certain deals. Because going to your favorite uh, little solicitor who's done conveyancing of your, you know, houses, uh, once every 10 years as you've moved house or whatever, to go back with a, a big commercial proposition and something totally new, totally different property strategy, they may well not be the correct person. They will give it a go, but they may well be sort of learning that or refreshing their minds on that particular aspect again, and they may miss things. So you might as well go for you know the, the specialist firm. So Think of it like um, a GP, and if they recommend that you need a bit of brain surgery, you don't ask the GP to have a go in his back office, do you? <laughs> uh, you then you then go to that person. So take the referral, take the advice, um, and and just have a chat with them about it because yeah, you you might as well do it. It could save money in the long term, especially especially if they've got it slightly wrong um, in terms of. Uh, you know, suggesting some of these clauses or, or terms within the contract. And, yeah. and some have been omitted, uh, not through uh, negligence, but just by omission and, um, you know, not being necessarily totally aware of everything. So yeah. there you go. Good stuff, Ray. Um, well, a, couple, a couple other things to consider ooh, as well. Excellent. Doing a shareholders agreement, um, you also have to, 
think about you know, one of the what ifs is is what if one of the shareholders dies? What if one of the shareholders is incapacitated? Uh, what's you know what's happening there? Do they have a power of attorney? Do they have a power of attorney over their affairs? Do they have a power of attorney over uh, finances or medical? Um, is there a deed of trust in place? There's a whole host of things in there. Um, one of the things that we've been instrumental in helping shareholders with is shareholder insurance. Now, it's not an, it's not it's not an expensive thing, but if you're doing a project that's you know millions, then if anything happens to one of the shareholders, uh, like for example, if you and I are involved in a deal, and it's fifty fifty, and it's a million pounds, and I pop my clogs, then my um, my heirs, my wife in this case, would be saying, well, okay, I've got Raymond shares here, fifty percent of the shares worth five hundred thousand. Nigel, are you buying them from me? Um, are you buying them? So, uh, do you have the money to buy them? The chances are you probably don't. So that's what this insurance will cover: is that that money to um, to step in and say, okay, you know, here here's here's the money to pay for it. That's all it does. That's 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 insurance policy. It just covers one thing. It's very specialist, um, but that's what it covers, and. I have known in the last five years, I've known three instances where that's happened, where um, a share, one in one case, a shareholder was killed in a car crash. In another case, a shareholder was walking down the street and had an aneurysm, um, a, a, a stroke. Uh, and another one was involved in a, a, in a serious accident, not a road accident, but just a different accident, and was incapacitated in hospital for a long, long time and unable to make decisions. Uh, and that obviously has an impact on the business. So it does it does happen. And of course, you know, things are going to come along that no one has anticipated. The whole COVID thing, you know, has has, has been, you know, the most unusual thing that any of us have ever uh, come across. And the, you know, the insurance companies didn't want to pay out over that. And I'm sure there'll be an awful lot of stuff that will come out over that. But I mean, that was sort of contracts were completely frustrated by that. That, Ray, one event. Yeah. Ray, when you're talking about lasting power of attorney, uh, obviously with me being uh, heavily involved in, in the care sector, uh, that is one of the most difficult things that uh, we, we find for families and next of kin to cope with is the fact that they have no legal power to act on behalf of someone. So whether it be finance or the health and well-being, uh, it's very, very frustrating for them to sit on the sidelines and have other people make decisions in what they call best interest meetings um, about the the care or uh, the finances of, of somebody. Um, and you're thinking, hang on, uh, this should be me. But you're in this uh, strange limbo of, of not quite being in control of that. And uh, I would definitely recommend to anyone that's out there. So whether it's you or you happen to have uh, relatives who are in a situ situation whereby, you know, the chances when you look at the stats, the chances are that one or both will be in that sort of position. You need to sit down and have a conversation about lasting power of attorney. Now, what it doesn't mean is that they sign the documents and that all of a sudden you've got carte blanche to go in and, and raid their piggy bank and stuff. No, it, it's only when that that eventuality happens where they've lost capacity uh, that you can step in and then act on their behalf. But if, somebody's la if somebody lacks capacity, they are then unable to sign those lasting power of attorney documents to give you control. So it's too late at that point to do it. So if you're thinking, um, you know, ooh, uh, I maybe need to investigate this, do. And it is something that is, um, a lot of them are, are prepackaged. Uh, you can buy them, uh, you know, from firm solicitors. The prices are not or should not be excessive unless the person has incredibly complex uh, arrangements and dealings and uh, all sorts of things. But for a, for a very standard thing, uh, investigate it. But remember, folks, there's two different ones. There's one regarding finances and there's one regarding health and well-being. So if, um, you know, anyone is potentially down the route of um, sadly suffering with dementia, um, having a finance lasting power of attorney has no bearing on your ability to decide for them 
on their treatment or their care arrangements. So you need to have a look at both of those. But we're going off topic there a bit. But Ray, it, it is an interesting one in terms of um, we, yeah, we've we've had instances whereby you have a, a an agreement with someone. Uh, and they're very happy with it. So it might be the spouse of someone who's coming to care uh, and they're very happy. We've had a verbal agreement with it. However, that person has then died and the family of the person still in care have a very different view of things. And this is where complications arise. So if you're doing a deal for business or property and you've got an agreement, it might be a verbal and it might be, yes, at the end of it, folks, we're going to, we're going to split it 50, 50. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And you're happy with that, with that person, just have a think. Okay. If that person wasn't there to do that, you know, to fulfill on that, who, in you know, just have, just have a look at the rest of the family. What do the family look like? Do they look like, you know, reasonable people, or do they look like they're going to cause you a problem? <laughs> because it's amazing when, other people suddenly get notified that they might be the beneficiaries of things. They can start acting in very um, unreasonable potentially ways. Uh, So you need to put these things in to protect, uh, you know, all sorts of people involved in these matters. So it's just something else to consider, but Ray and anything else there on your list of things, I think we've covered a tremendous amount. I think people may well be having to go back and listen to this one again, get all your nuggets. I suppose it, if, while we're on the subject, if there's anyone listening to this and they do have property assets and they're married and they have children, then uh, no matter what age you are, you ought to do what's called estate planning or protecting your wealth moving forward through your property journey. Um, and it's quite an, a, a, an important process and it's better to start it now before it becomes emotional. So um, my current situation is I'm married, I've got two children and, and I've set up some things for ourselves. So for example, we've got wills, two wills, one for me, one for my wife with guardians for our children. We've got two flexible um, family trusts, discretionary trusts, memorandum of wishes. Um, We've nominated trustees. They're going to be in control of things until our children reach a certain age. Um, And then they will uh, replace those trustees once they reach that age. Um, So holding assets in trust uh, ensures they don't add to a beneficiary's estate and impacts inheritance tax. Because the last thing you want to do is have nothing in place and then anything above 380,000 or whatever it is, um, is subject to inheritance tax. You don't want a whole, a whole chunk of that getting taken away. We've got bloodline planning in place, um, which essentially means if my daughter marries a guy who turns out to be an idiot, he doesn't run off with half her assets, that sort of thing. Um, We've got uh, severance of tenancy documents. Uh, We own our main residence, our personal names, but we bought that using an annuity. And then, um, you know, you have joint tenants and and tenants in common and and that sort of thing. So you want to make sure all of that is done. Um, And, uh, you know, we've got commercial buildings. So the commercial buildings are owned by the company, but the shares are owned by us, that sort of thing. So it's uh, we've also got lasting powers of attorney in place for medical and financial. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we're, we're doing all of that. Um, and we've got life cover in place as well that adds to the beneficiaries estate and it will impact inheritance tax. So it's going to mitigate it. So um, all of that sounds like an awful lot. But if you do that when it's unemotional, you can put all that in place for about 1,500 quid. You know, it's, it's a lot. If you leave it and don't do anything, you could end up paying fifty or a hundred thousand in inheritance tax. It's that much of a difference. It is that much of a difference. So, um, getting these documents in place might seem painful at the time. You know, and I don't mean painful in terms of money, but it, it can take a while. I mean, putting a power of attorney in place takes about three months. You know, um, I think the fees are eighty quid to register it, something like that. But it can take a few months and it's got to be done right in a sequential order. Everyone's got to sign it in a sequential order. And if they sign it in the wrong order, date in the wrong order, the whole process starts again. So it can be administratively tortuous, but better to get it done when it's unemotional than to uh, than to wait for an event to trigger it. I always say that. I always say that. Yeah. And uh, even things um, 
like getting life insurance, you can get that so that it's paid out in trust as well. You can also get your limited company to do that. So it's uh, an allowable expense. So you can, there are ways and means of doing those as well. There's also uh, having a pension scheme, setting up your own so that your pension doesn't uh, disappear uh, on yours and your spouse's death. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so you can leave that more as a legacy. There are loads of things that you can set up, folks. So I know we've kind of, Ray, we've kind of morphed from um, terms of uh, heads of terms uh, through various things. But I think these things all come together because when you start doing these things, your affairs are getting a little bit more complicated than the average person. And therefore, you need to just spend a bit of time. I mean, I, I've got to say, I, I hate it. I hate doing admin. Um, you know, and I'm terrible. I've got most of what you were talking through. There's a couple I was thinking, oh yes. And I might need to just go back and revisit the will and update it for various things. But yeah, folks, um, someone once said that uh, an awful lot of tax in this country, in the UK is a tax on being ignorant. Um, and it, it, in many respects, it is true. And uh, some people take the opinion it's not fair. Um, they're not paying their tax. It's a case of, for some of them, the tax is, to all intents and purposes, optional. And if you get do things in the right way and, and structure it the right way and, and get the right advice and do the right things, then some of these things you do not necessarily fall under the remit of being taxed on it. So it's up to you to do it um, because let's face it, the government are not going to do TV adverts explaining how to, uh, to not do it because uh, there you go. And, and you can have your own opinion about uh, paying of taxes, um, but if you're in this position, you have pretty much paid an awful lot of tax and probably far more than your fair share uh, through life because you'll have paid it on earned income, you'll have paid it on corporation tax, you'll have paid it on VAT, on stamp duty, on all manner of things, national insurance, income tax, PAYE, all these things you will have paid, capital gains, all sorts of things you will have paid. But there comes a point where if you are sensible, and as Ray says, have planned it correctly, it can end at that point. And, uh, you know, I I don't know about you, Ray, but I, I often think that... Um, Sometimes um, I'm, I'm not always convinced the government spends our tax money efficiently, shall we say. <laughs> and sometimes if you can leave a little bit more to the next generation, the next generation's requirement to uh, go to the state for handouts diminishes. And maybe that's a more efficient way of doing a, an element of that. Um, I don't know. I don't know what your thoughts are. Taxes are very emotive uh, thing. And, uh, you know, people get very upset over it. Did you see, Ray, actually, before we go, did you see the G7 agreeing that worldwide tax rate? Uh, I didn't know. Have they agreed a worldwide corporation tax rate, have they? Yeah, so that um, they're looking at 15%. So <laughs> so the likes of, obviously, 15. Dublin. 15. Dublin um, was probably not best pleased on that, given their corporation taxes. Is it 12.5%? 12 and a half, yeah. 12 and a half. So that, you know, this is a way of getting around that. But this is for folks, um, all the major mega corporations around the world who um, use tax regimes to their advantage. So I think uh, one of them, it was shown they had 332 billion of turnover and they paid zero tax. Um <laughs> I can't remember which one it was. It, it will have been one of the uh, one of the the likely candidates: uh, Facebook, Amazon, Google, Apple, who, whoever. I can't remember which. But what they were saying with this global tax rate is, we don't care where you are, um, you pay a minimum fifteen percent. Mm-hmm. Um, driven, I believe, by America, but I think everyone else is thinking, yeah, we've got. A, chuffing big bill here for this coronavirus. We we need to get something. And 15% of a 332 billion turnover, um, you know, that helps. That helps. So there you go. So at the moment, um, you know, you can, a, a lot of people get very angry uh, about big corporations not paying tax. 
But if the law says that they don't need to, if they do it in a certain way, I don't see what your argument is. Your your question should be, how do we change the tax regime to make sure that doesn't happen? So there we go. But Ray, uh, excellent stuff. Um, I'm hoping that has really helped people. Uh, People would love to hear your feedback. Uh, Give us a review on uh, Apple Podcasts. Uh, That would be great. I don't know. and if anybody wants any of that information on trusts or anything else, then feel free to email. Yeah, well, what we can do is we, we'll stick it, um, we'll put it on the, the website um, and then you'll be able to click on it and get a, a summary of that. How about that, Ray? Yeah. Uh, so go to the website, www.htrmoney.co.uk. I think, yeah, I think it's .co.uk. It is .co.uk. It is .co.uk. God, I, I really do Swiss myself in knots on that. Um, but yeah, that that would be great. Do that. Get that because it's brilliant. Um, here we go. Must listen. Five-star review. Um, difficult subjects made easy to digest and understand gives confidence to move forward with any plans you will have around raising finance. And that was from oh, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. <laughs> couple of weeks ago there you go from jw thank you very much uh that's that's brilliant um really pleased for that and uh we've got another one um yeah <laughs> we've got we've got people ray you, you've got to question the sanity of some people because you've got people who say keep it up you know keep it keep going they're keep encouraging us yeah. they're encouraging us ray whatever <laughs> next so are you gonna sign us off all right uh I have been Ray McLennan, and uh, on that bombshell, let's... <laughs> yeah, I'm still Nigel T-Best. How to Raise Money podcast. Yeah, Ray, great stuff. Valuable content today. Thank you so much on behalf of everyone for your insights there. Fantastic stuff. We'll see you soon, folks. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the How to Raise Money podcast. It's made for people who want to raise money as debt or investment equity for their business or property proposal or empire. See you next time, where we can show you how to raise money. There is abundance. There is money enough for everyone on the planet. The question is, who has yours?